So one thing that I've been doing recently uh, is reading up on all the recent papers that are available. And uh, one of them that I came across actually quite recently, so this just came out, I think in the last uh, two weeks, mm-hmm. maybe you know better than I do. March but, 25th. Um, yeah, and, and this paper this paper came out in JAMA. So, you know, big news, JAMA, March 26th. Yeah, ne- never heard of it. <laughs> yeah, never heard of JAMA. Uh, so anyways, this is from the University of Pennsylvania. It's a, a study called the patient reported opioid consumption and pain intensity after common orthopedic and urologic uh, surgical procedures with use of an automated text messaging system. Very uh, descriptive title, long-winded title to basically say they're, they're tracking uh, opioid consumption, pain scores, and uh, ability to manage pain through a novel automated text messaging system. I feel like my description of the title is actually longer than the title itself, but um, uh, it's a great paper. It's written by three main authors, Anish Agarwal, who is the uh, assistant professor of emergency medicine at uh, University of Pennsylvania, uh, Dr. Daniel Lee, assistant professor of urology at University of Pennsylvania, and Zarina Ali, uh, who is a, a doctor as well, assistant professor of neurosurgery at University of Pennsylvania. And uh, the contributors include, obviously, the orthopedic surgery group and the urology group as well. But in in any case, I thought this was a great paper. I read it, and uh, I thought it would be a a good place to review the paper as well on our podcast today for our audience. The summary of the paper, um, how they designed the study, what the results were, some of the conclusions that uh, the study authors wrote into the paper as well. uh, And also maybe provide some of our own take on, on what the study had. Um, since it is yeah, in the space yeah. of digital fish engagement. Yeah, I guess, Al, maybe just to the backdrop is the reason that I guess we we chose to bring this study onto the podcast was, um, even though there's obviously been a lot of research done on opioid consumption in general, um, including, I think, on uh, page-reported outcomes data collection on opioid consumption after surgery, um, this was unique in that it used a, a digital mechanism to collect regular data that was operatively on opioid consumption. So they, so they basically they set up a text messaging protocol to collect um, every couple of days. It sounds like post-op when the patient was home, um, how much opioids they were they were taking uh, to better understand um, how much patients were taking at least self-reported compared to how much was prescribed. I guess that was the the main. Um, conversation point. May you talk, talk about first, like why this study is important, and then we can go into maybe the details. Yep, great um, idea. Do you want to cover that, or? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I think the the basic uh, premise is uh, the opioid crisis has been an issue for for you know, quite a few years now, but it's gotten a lot of attention in the recent press, um, the last few years in the media, and certainly um, prescriptions of opioids after surgery have contributed, you know, significantly to the opioid crisis. Uh, we've certainly covered the opioid crisis and patient engagement and PROs for it um, on some of our other podcasts, Alan. Um, so it's definitely a topic that you and I have a, have a personal interest in. Um, but I think one of the, the missing things for a lot of organizations has been, it's not enough to just recognize there's an opioid crisis, but if we're going to tackle it from a surgery point of view, clinicians really care about knowing, well, um, how do we know we should be reducing how much we prescribed, right? Because I think what clinicians don't want is um, they're just guessing what a, mm-hmm. a, a safe number of pills to prescribe is, right? What they don't want to do is reduce that prescription 
amount and then have patients in, in incredible pain when they go home. Right. But I think there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that, you know, there's probably a lot of um, opioid, uh, the opioids that are prescribed for surgery that aren't used um, mm-hmm. by patients. And I think some of our other podcasts, Alan, we've talked about some of the work done by the University of Michigan Health System, where they've found, you know, I, I think it was probably 30 to 40% of, um, of opioids that were prescribed after surgery weren't even used and end up, you know, not being disposed of properly. So there's definitely a lot of good data in general about how much opioids are being used. But I think one of the novel things for this group was actually the way they collected um, that data wasn't through, you know, paper forms a month after surgery, they actually collected uh, regular data from patients digitally. So maybe um, that gives some good context for, for getting into the attributes of the study. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think what I can appreciate from this study is they didn't change their practices before doing the study. They, they wanted to leave everything as they were currently doing it. What is the standard of care? How many opioid uh, tablets are they currently prescribing patients? They didn't change any of that. So they just left it the same. The only addition that they had here was let's implement this automated text messaging uh, system that basically is going to uh, text patients on, I think the cadence was day four post-op, day seven, day 14, day 21, and day 28 post-op. And we want to ask them about what was their pain on a scale from uh, zero to 10, 10 representing you know, the highest pain. Um, we wanted to ask them what is their ability to manage their pain levels, so uh, their confidence and their ability to manage pain. Again, zero, not confident at all, 10, very able to uh, manage pain. And then, of course, the opioid consumption. So they wanted to understand how many pills or how many tablets did the patient actually consume. Uh, And then the idea is we can then, after the study is complete, take a look at how many pills are we prescribing versus how many pills are patients reporting to consume and correlate that with their pain scores and and, uh, ability to manage pain. So the way that they designed the study, I think uh, needs to be mentioned. So this was a a quality improvement study. It was for adults who are 18 or older. um, And this was for, again, uh, common orthopedic procedures and urologic procedures. Like I mentioned, it was post-op measured. So days four, seven, 21, or 14, 21, 28. And uh, it's important to note that for the study's purpose, obviously this was patients opting into the study, um, but that does of course have a bit of a a selection bias and the the authors obviously mentioned this in their limitations of the study, but it does skew the data slightly because it happened to be uh, younger patients who were opting in. They typically had fewer comorbidities uh, and the data suggests that they were mostly white uh, in race as well. And um, that plays in as, as well with the the um, data that was collected. One thing I'm, I'm curious about, Alan, and I'm not sure if they ever addressed this in the paper, but um, do you know if, if they ever talked about why they focus on orthopedic and urology procedures in the first place? I don't actually, and they, they don't mention it in the paper, but what was interesting that, that I took away from this is um, even standard practice, the number of pills prescribed for orthopedic and urology are quite different. Um, and the, the reported pain scores are quite different. Uh, so it, it's kind of neat that they chose these two specialties. They, they differ quite a bit in, in terms of their regular practice of opioid prescriptions. I don't actually know why uh, they chose these two. Could just be these are the two you know, progressive groups that wanted to, yeah, to, to move good forward convenience. with it. They were the most willing to, to be part of it. That's probably yeah. what it was. But, uh, but it also, it, it, it leaves a good question of, and maybe they're investigating this already, 
you know, what does data look like for the other surgical departments and, and how different is the data? Right. Um, okay. Yeah, exactly. So um, in the study, the primary outcome uh, was to measure the difference, like Josh said, the difference between the number of opioid tablets prescribed mm -hmm. and the patient reported number of tablets taken. This was measured in uh, a five milligram tablet equivalent of oxycodone. Um, however, the actual opioid use may have, um, you know, changed uh, depending on the patient. But again, it's, it's all being measured in that equivalent basis. Uh, the secondary outcome was, of course, self-reported pain intensity and reported ability to manage pain, again, on a scale of 0 to 10 for both of those measures. Um, and like I suggested, the patients received an automated text message post-op day 4, day 7, day 14, day 21, and day 28. Um, I will mention, if the patient reported that they took zero opioids on any of those days, and indicated that they were not going to take opioids in the future as well, then the text message automatically stopped. So if it's day four and the patient says, I took zero pills, they will not receive another text message throughout the, the period of the study. And I think that's important and, and needs to be mentioned as well. Um, and we can discuss on that point uh, maybe later on once we've, we've kind of uh, reviewed the rest of the paper. But just to set the stage, there was 919 participants in the study. I think 80% of them were orthopedic surgery and uh, roughly 20% were urology. The study also does a good breakdown in terms of the age, demographic, comorbidity, and, and they slice and dice the, the groups really well with um, some, some advanced statistics as well. But um, back over to you for the pain and uh, opioid consumption results. Yeah, so um, if you actually go to the paper for folks who end up downloading the paper and we'll, we'll link to it, um, they have a really good table that that does break down um, pain scores and ability to manage pain um, across day seven, day 14, and day 21 post-op. Um, but at a high level for the orthopedic patients, the average day four pain score was 4.72. Um, by day 21, um, the average reduction in pain was you know 0 0.0, 0.4. Um, which is interesting in that it doesn't, it didn't decline that much on average uh, right. from day four to day 21, which maybe is not that surprising given that if it is a, an orthopedic issue, maybe a, a joint issue, um, it's not necessarily pain that was going to completely go away, uh, perhaps, but certainly not an orthopedic expert. Average ability to manage pain um, started at 7.32 on day four in ortho patient and, and um, only declined by an average of 0.8, if that's right, um, which is not, not a lot either. Um, and then in urology, um, I think we saw a, a better improvement in pain. So day four average pain urology was 3.48, declined by 1.5 um, by day 21. And then ability to manage pain started at 7.34 and declined by, by 0.8 by, by day 14. Or, or it, it increased by 0.8. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, they improved, improved. They're right. going to manage pain improved. Right. Uh, and I guess maybe urology is, is you know, something where um, it's more around incisional pain, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that they could see a, a bigger improvement on sooner. So I, I don't think any of this is all that surprising. Right. Um, but, but good to know. Um, I think the more interesting outcome was around the difference in uh, tablets that were prescribed versus self-reported consumed. Mm -hmm. Um, so for orthopedics, the mean number of tablets prescribed for opioids was 20 
and the median consumed was six. So that's about a two third difference. And then urology, the, the median prescribed was seven. The median consumed was, was just one tablet. Mm -hmm. That is, that is pretty interesting, pretty surprising. Yeah. And, and so the total of both of these groups over the entire study period, and, and we should have mentioned, I think this was from 2019, the, the actual study took place. It was published um, this year, but um, the participants were uh, during 2019. So over the entire study period, uh, 9,452 uh, out of the 15,581 total tablets that were prescribed. So 60% of the total opioid tablets were unused uh, completely. They, you know, they were prescribed, but they, they weren't used. Oh, it's because um, that, 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 that is self-reported unused, not, right. we, don't, we don't know for sure if it's 60%, but you know, at least self-reported wise. Yep. So yeah, I, I mean, fair point. There probably is some discrepancy uh, just, you know, based on human nature and, you know, memory, like there, there definitely could be a, a difference there. The other neat findings so 589 patients, uh, which represents 64%, they used less than half the amount prescribed. So like Josh mentioned, you know, if the, the median prescription for urology was seven and the median consumption reported was one, that's obviously less than half. Um, so big finding there. Uh, and then finally, 256 or 27.8% of the participants didn't use any opioids at all. Um, and I think that's pretty neat as well. The, the fact that there are, you know, obviously UPenn does some great work around uh, like enhanced recovery and there's some initiatives in place that are, are trying to reduce the amount of opioids just needed in, in general for pain management. Um, and to have a 27.8% a, a, a of patients not use any opioids, um, I think speaks volumes uh, as well. What's really neat, Alan, is they actually, um some of the figures, they actually break uh, this data down further by procedure type. So let's say a orthopedics, they separated by, you know, ankle fracture, um, you know, uh, knee arthroscopy, hip arthroscopy, uh, lower extremity repair, et cetera. And so what's interesting, again, like, I mean, it's obviously, uh, you know, limited sample size, of course, but, you know, they're finding that in terms of median numbers of opioids prescribed and self-reported taken. So on the one hand, for lower extremity repairs, the average prescribed was 10, but the, sorry, the median prescribed was 10, but it looks like the median of opiates taken was, was zero, which is mm. kind of interesting. Um, whereas, you know, for, for ankle fractures, the, the median prescribed was around 25, but the median taken was closer to five. Um, so I, I think that the, the point is there's, when you slice into the data, there, there's something to be said where if, if some of this data is reasonably accurate, you end up wanting to use that to inform prescription practices going forward on an in, as much as on, as an individualized basis as you can. I think that that's kind of the neat finding here. And so certainly it's showing that there are some procedures where we probably are prescribing far more than we need to. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'll give you an example. So like they're, they were showing how in the data, um, let me give you a good example here. So upper extremity fractures, were being prescribed about 25 pills um, as a median, but the median use was five, mm -hmm. self-reported. Whereas articular fracture on the knee were being prescribed also a median of 25 pills, but 12 to 13 was self-reported being used as a median. Right. And so clearly there were, there were some procedures where we are prescribing a lot more than probably we should mm -hmm. um, relative to 
um, you know, how much is actually needed. That's very interesting. Yeah. It's almost like we were arbitrarily deciding, you know, the mm -hmm. number of opiates to prescribe and no one's ever really looked at the data for years, probably. Mm -hmm. like, well, there was no data. And, and that's the thing. I think it was so difficult to collect that data. Like the, the authors talk about in the past how they would have, you know, phone calls to patients to try and figure this out. But that, that's a lot of manual labor uh, involved. You, you need a, a PA or a nurse or somebody calling these patients every day. They might not pick up the phone. You have to call back. You're playing phone tag. Like it, it gets pretty challenging just to collect the information. So having this kind of novel approach using digital patient engagement, even if it's just, you know, text messaging and an automated system through text, you're going to get uh, the data uh, back, which is very helpful to figure out this nuanced uh, equation here, like which procedures and which, um, what's the difference between the, the number of opioids prescribed versus uh, reported consumption. And so the, the broad stroke conclusion to the paper was that there was a difference between the amount that are being prescribed uh, versus consumed. And they also deduced that, you know, patient reported data collected through this text messaging system uh, could support clinicians in tailoring their prescriptions in the future and, and guide shared decision-making to limit the excess quantities of prescribed opioids. And then I, I do agree with you, Josh, that there is some nuance here where, you know, the up, upper extremities is getting 25, but only using five, for instance, whereas, you know, uh, an arthroscopy of the knee, 25 and maybe 13 or, or 14 are being uh, consumed or reported to be consumed. So I think that leads really well into the discussion that the, the authors um, put into the paper, which is, you know, around promoting uh, opioid stewardship for management of acute post-op pain uh, does require a nuanced and coordinated effort. So maybe the sample size on some of these procedures were pretty small, so it's, it's not definitive proof that we need to reduce the, the prescription practices. But I think broad stroke across the board, there is a, a good argument for reducing the, the amount of pills actually prescribed. What's neat is the, the authors kind of uh, bring in Pareto's law into the equation, um, which is that 80-20 principle, or in this case, I think the authors use a 75-25 uh, ratio. But how do we, you know, um, how do we make sure that we um, accommodate 75% of our patient population the best? Um, and, and that would be by prescribing uh, fewer opioids to, be, to begin with. So for orthopedic prescriptions, you know, maybe instead of 20 pills being prescribed based on this data, we can see seven tablets would probably hit, you know, 75% of the patients properly. Uh, and then there could be a few outliers that need to refill prescriptions from there. Urology opioid prescriptions, maybe we can reduce that to five instead of seven. Uh, and you would still be accommodating those those outliers who maybe need more than one tablet. They need up to five. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, either you go that route where you try to capture the majority and support the majority well, or I think the authors also mentioned this, you could also try to break it down by procedure to try to make it more customized. Because, I mean, clearly the, the, the data shows this distribution in need between um, actual opioid uh, requirements for procedures. That kind of makes sense too. I mean, the next layer is kind of what we're interested in seamless, which is okay. We would definitely want to um, personalize it based on procedure, but we know the other characteristics, right? There's, it's going to be impacted by other demographic um, factors, right? There's going to be, it's going to be affected by um, prior um, pain experiences. 
prior, um, are they opioid naive or not? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's all kinds of different, I think, factors even beyond procedure type that ideally, if you had the data and the model, you would make it even more personalized. I think practically speaking, starting with at the very least, making it different per department, and then ideally at the very least by by procedure mm-hmm. is a good starting point. But I think the holy grail, of course, is if we can know more and more about the patient and tailor this yeah. uh, more personally, that's kind of the holy grail for, for right. personalized care. Right. And, and that is really where we're headed. So it's, you know, taking in the um, data that we have for specific procedures and opioid consumption. And then beyond that, how do we attach a, an opioid risk score to that particular patient and combine it with the procedure they're taking and, and kind of achieve that holy grail number of prescribed pills for that particular patient. Um, And then also combine this with different modalities where we're trying to, you know, decrease the amount of opioids we need even in general. So prehab patients and and try and figure out ways where we can um, use non-opioid or opioid sparing modalities to to reduce that. And I think you bring up a good point around limitations of the study. And the authors do point it out, but um, there definitely is a a selection and non-responder bias uh, in in the study. So this is obviously an opt-in study. And about half the patients didn't opt in. I mean, that that is a a fairly high, you know, withdrawal rate or or non-participant rate. Right. Right. And, and of the participant or of the non-participants, they tended to be older. They tended to be uh, more likely black in race, and they also had uh, more com- uh, comorbidities. So that's skewing the data right there. Um, and, and you have to ask, like, I wonder how many opioids those patients are needing. And maybe those are the ones that actually need more or are developing, you know, uh, potentially uh, misuse of, of opioids and, and dependency. So uh, they also, they tended to be, yeah, um, like I said, with comorbidities, but like tobacco use, alcohol um, dependent. So it, it does obviously raise a lot of questions around that. Um, I think as well, this this study took place in 2009, kind of that height of the media Wait, awareness. 2019 or 2019? So 2019, sorry, yeah, not 2009. Uh, we, we already confirmed 2009, Alan, so. <laughs> um, and... Uh, but that was kind of the height of the media awareness of opioid crisis at the time. So possibly a Hawthorne effect was uh, was in effect as well for the study, a uh, slight bias. The patients knew that they were being tracked for opioid consumption, and they also knew that there was this opioid crisis uh, around them. So they were maybe a bit more careful with taking opioids because of that and because they knew that they were being tracked. Um, I mean, I, I'd love a follow-up with this group and say, okay, well, the data was collected from May 1st, 2019 to December 31st, 2019. Um, I'm not quite sure when the analysis was done, but I, but I don't think it would take that long to do this analysis. So let's say, let's say by no later than the summer of 2020, yes, it was, mm-hmm. it was, you know, COVID, but by the summer of 2020, they would have had insight into what this showed. And so it's been what, nine months since then, I'd love to ask the authors, your team has this data, has practice changed? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, be a, because that, yeah. that, that, that's almost to me more important. It's, it's one of those things where a lot of times we do research and we get the insight, but then if we have the insight, that's step one. Step two is, can we use that insight to actually improve practice? So number one, um, did it change? And number two, and then maybe it's gone through iterations. I'm curious, mm-hmm. did they go with, with, hey, let's pick a number that 
satisfies the 70, you know, 5% of patients or was there pushback from people who said, no, 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 90%. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, We should have them on the podcast. I think think it would be a very good discussion. I'd love to know. I mean, the other thing I think about is practically speaking, what are other ways to reduce um, prescriptions now that, now that they have the data? And I think it could be as simple as, you know what, we don't have to get it perfectly right. So instead of trying to maybe reduce it from, let's say 20 to seven, whatever, for example, for orthopedics, because mm-hmm. maybe that's too contentious internally. Yeah. Okay. Okay, everyone. No more than 18. 18. Yeah, exactly. Don't think anyone would disagree with that. And then you do 18 and then you collect, you keep collecting the data from patients. You keep running right. the data collection. You see if pain scores are any worse. You see if the satisfaction is, is, is higher. And if not, you go, okay, well, maybe 16 mm-hmm. next quarter. And you can mm-hmm. kind of graduate the reduction yeah. while still collecting the data. By doing that, number one, um, you get less um, maybe disagreement or, or, or you get more buy-in across the department to try a small change. And then you measure and then you make more small changes. And then you'll probably get to a certain point that people are pretty satisfied with and the data is, is positive for, for being a, an effective number to reach and, and a safe number to reach. Um, but that might be a better approach than just saying, hey, like, let's go straight to, you know, a, like a, a much lower number that right. there may not be buying, you're kind of unsure about. Mm-hmm. Um, with the mindset that we don't have to get it exactly at the perfect number the first time. Let's just, right. let's just be directionally correct. Let's just go in the right direction. Exactly. Yeah. Gradually. I think that's a reasonable yeah. approach. I don't think that happens enough, though. I think people try to optimize for. Right. What is the actual mile. best? Yeah, the optimal route. Yeah, but I, I like that point about, you know, a step in the right direction. I don't know how anybody could be against taking a step in the right direction. I, I will point out, like, uh, the University of Pennsylvania, they are already uh, prescribing fewer opioid tablets than the national average. So for orthopedic surgery, you know, the national average, I think, is about 40 uh, uh, tablets prescribed and 20 for urology so both of those are already much higher than what the University of Pennsylvania was doing as their standard of care. Um, but it goes to show you if, if they can even, you know, find in their patient population that uh, fewer opioids are even needed than what they're currently prescribing, then nationally, we, we should be tracking this data as well to figure out, you know, just how far off are we uh, as, a, as a healthcare system uh, across the, the country. That... That is incredible. I mean, so congrats on them on, on being already better than 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 the average. But but it goes to show you that the average is that high, and and their data is suggesting that the amount actually used or and, and therefore needed is much less. There's a lot of a lot of opportunity for improvement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I also think it's neat. So the point of this technology in their study was to do exactly what they'd done. So collect these three measures from patients, these three patient reported outcomes around pain, ability to manage pain and opioid consumption. And that was it. So let's let's collect that that, that data so then we can uh, take it back to our group and and make a better uh, decision around stewardship. And so that that is absolutely fair. That is a great um, effort and and definitely the right move for um, a study to take. I think we can now take that technology and, and expand on it, asking ourselves, you know, what can we do to provide even more value back to the patient? So we're collect or 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 even addressing, you know, the non-participants. How do we get them involved 
in these kind of uh, data collection efforts in, in the studies. And it could be around value that we're providing to the patient. So if we're just, you know, here's a technology that's asking you for information so that we can, you know, better inform our care in the future, that's one thing. But if it's, here's a technology that's gonna help you um, with your, your pain, that's gonna help you identify areas of improvement and, and how you can recover and, and really provide you that value throughout your journey while we're collecting this information, that's kind of the next layer to it. That's like the level two to using this technology for this same kind of purpose. Um, you have thoughts around, around how, how to kind of add that next layer? You, you, you mean, uh, do, do I know anyone who, who's, who's pretty expert at uh, using technology to, to engage patients and uh, exactly uh, for, for opioids? Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously, it seems there's a lot of work in that space. I mean, th the study does remind me of some of the work that that we we've done with Atrium Health on opioids. And we talked a bit about that in the past, but they actually did some good work a couple of years ago with us on on collecting opioid consumption data for HPB. And one of the things they found in a very uh, similar approach was that um, the amount of opioids that patients self-reported actually needing after HPV surgery um, was about, I believe, one-tenth of what they were prescribed. I think it was about mm -hmm. that range, um, which is uh, a pretty big discrepancy. Now, obviously, I think that's a bit of an underestimate because, again, like we're not getting the full data set properly. Mm -hmm. But if it's even within the range of not maybe 20%, even 30%, right? Yeah. Let's say it was off by that oh, much. Quite a if bit it was even 30% was prescribed, like that, that is a major disparity between what they actually, what patients are actually saying they need and what we're prescribing them. And then, you know, again, I don't quite know what the disposal looks like. And so as part of one of the things that we do in Seamless is we actually provide education on the, on the patient app of how you safely dispose of opioids. But my hope is that we can get to a point where the prescription of opioids is so personalized that hopefully disposal education is used you know rarely mm -hmm. i would hope that that not every patient has to look up how to dispose of opioids i mean right. hopefully we can we can kind of get it right um the first time with the prescription practices so mm -hmm. um i mean one of the interesting things that that we found as well at seamless is you know some of our for example some of our, our cardiac um center partners are doing um benchmarking of patient report outcomes on the platform and they're benchmarking opioid um, use. One of the things they also benchmark is what percent of patients um, self-report receiving an opioid prescription at discharge. And within this network, I remember, you know, you and these are all high performing centers. You have one cardiac center that says that they prescribe that 80% of patients say they get opioids at discharge. And one center says 40% of patients get prescriptions at discharge for the same procedure type, open heart surgery. And in, it makes you wonder, gosh, for two high-performing centers, why is it that one center pres um, is prescribing twice as often mm -hmm. among the population? Is it, hey. just, is it just the way they've always done it? Is it that one center is better managing pain in the hospital mm -hmm. and the other center could have learned from that and, and led to less prescriptions at discharge? I don't know, but, mm -hmm. but it, it fosters that conversation. And I think that's the other piece that's missing. It's like, well, it's great that we now, it's great for, for, I guess, for Penn to know what does this look like for Penn? Mm -hmm. But I think until there's clear benchmarking with other institutions and other, and, and for the similar procedure types, it's hard to know, um, is this, is where we're at good? Mm -hmm. 
Or can we learn from our peers that actually there's a next level of opioid reduction that we could get to, but you only know that if you can actually compare to your peers. And I think that's a big part that's missing. And and it's no fault of pens. It's more that you need to have, um, you know, the effort that goes into actually enabling centers to collect the same data benchmark and so that we know it's possible. Mm -hmm. And so I'm proud of the fact that Seamless is kind of facilitating some of that work already in that benchmarking. Yeah. Yeah, and I think um, you know the technology does provide, and not I'm not just talking about seamless. I'm talking about any type of digital patient engagement technology here does provide some of that insight and and has that ability to be what's the word benchmarkable. Like you're able to collect things in a controlled manner uh, across you know number of different health systems. I think it's neat as well. I just want to tie in some more of the the University of Michigan work that's been mm-hmm. done with opioids. And uh, what they were finding was, you know, if we can prehab our patients and set the expectation that there will be some pain, so not, not, you know, completely oblivious to the fact that, you know, patients are going to be in pain, but set that expectation up front uh, and then teach them, you know, methods to, to manage that pain through other, uh, 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 other non-narcotics, um, I think is, is kind of the the next kind of action item for groups to take uh, in terms of reducing the opioids uh, across the board. So prescribing less, but then also just in their standard of care, just needing less opioids altogether. Um, but to do that, there is kind of that ethical question of, you know, if your patients are gonna be in pain, but maybe there is a certain uh, amount of, of pain tolerance that should be expected and, and needs to be communicated to avoid having you know an opioid crisis. So obviously, there's a lot of uh, negative uh, effects of, of prescribing opioids after surgery. And so that's the, the central uh, point here is how do we reduce that, um, the amount of, of pills being prescribed or the amount of pills being misused and, and uh, developing um, a dependency. Yeah, I, I think maybe historically there's this misconception that you're trying to get to zero out of 10 pain, and that's not really the goal. Mm-hmm. The goal is to make sure your pain is what we call manageable. Mm-hmm. And I think in most in most places, that means if you can get your pain to a four out of 10 or less, um, then that's pretty good. I mean, a four is still pain. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not nothing. Mm-hmm. But it's if you can tolerate it for I mean, for a couple of weeks, like the, the message that you should try to, um, right. and I think you're right, Alan, it's what the, the expectation setting of, Hey, four out of 10 pain is okay. Mm-hmm. Like it was okay mm-hmm. that you're going to have to deal with it. It will go away. It will get It'll better. Go away. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's going to, it's going to be uncomfortable for, you know, maybe a, a couple of days, a couple of weeks, whatever it is, but, but it's, if it's manageable, then, 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 then manage it, um, without narcotics. I think that that's a fair message, but, but you're right. I think the expectation is really important. If you tell patients you shouldn't have any pain, that, that sends the right. wrong message. Absolutely. Um, and and you're right. The Michigan Open Initiative has some really good, really good resources on this actually. And I, ho- I hope I hope more folks actually end up using that. They've done some fantastic work that 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 uh, a lot of folks could benefit from. Right. Yeah. Um, I think as well, like one of the main um, measures for surgery or subjective measures for patients that we look at is quality of life. Right. And um, sure, there's an argument to be said that, you know, prescribing opioids is going to improve quality of life in the short term, and there's no doubt that it will do that. It's going to manage their pain. They're going to feel, you know, better. 
uh, for the, the short term, but there is these downstream or there are these downstream effects um, that would actually impact quality of life. So if we're looking at quality of life, we, we should be looking at it from a, on, a, on a longer time scale. Um, and not to say that they don't, I mean, yeah, our, our healthcare systems are actually quite good at measuring quality of life and looking at it on a, a long scale. But, um, you know, the, the, the right ethical thing to do could be to tell patients that there is gonna be an expectation of pain in the short term, but your quality of life is gonna improve in the long term. Um, and that, that might be the thing to do. Fair. I mean, the, the only last thought I have, Alan, on the, the study is just, uh, I'm curious if um, Penn continued to collect this data. Um, I hope they had an opportunity to, because especially, especially if they've changed their practices, it'd be great to see um, what the data shows, you know, in terms of, because it'd be great to show, hey, we've reduced the prescription practices. Um, patients are, are still saying they only need X amount, and now X is closer to what we're prescribing in a good way. Um, that is great positive reinforcement to mm -hmm. the clinical teams. And especially if that the pain scores haven't changed either. Um, so they're, they're well managed, but they're not over prescribing. I hope they're able to collect that data. I think that, that would be a great um, second follow-up um, study to review that data if they have it. Right. I, I would also be curious. So uh, uh, as it is from this study, you know, let's say we're prescribing 20 tablets for our orthopedic population and 64% and of them uh, used half or less or, or fewer, right? I, I would be curious if they did change the prescription to 15, does that 60% still remain? And is it rather than the patients are now taking 10 pills like they were before, but they're now taking seven. So is it still kind of hitting on that half um, uh, or like half the patients are actually taking half the opioids or 60% taking half the opioids? Like, I wonder how much of the uh, opioid uh, non-use comes from the knowledge that opioids are not something that you want to be on long-term. And so maybe if you're prescribing 20, they'll take 10. Maybe if you're prescribing 10, they'll take six. You know, who knows? Like that's something to be measured as well. And, and For sure. And you not, not, not to toot the seamless horn, but I think that's one of the powerful um, things about having a, a patient engagement platform where you're continuously not only educating and engaging the patient pre and post-op, but you are making data collection like this part of the normal um, course of care for a patient. Mm -hmm. So that way, as you change your practices, as you change your, your opioid strategies, you will keep getting that data. Right. Um, I, I think, I think it's, it, it's disappointing if you can only collect data for a study for a certain <laughs> time point. But when the fact that 99% of the time you're not doing a study, you're just delivering care, that data is so important. And now we can, right. and there's ways now to collect this data. Mm -hmm. I, I, mm -hmm. I, we got to enable that. Um, yep. Anyways, that, that, that's, my, that's my rant. But. No, totally agree. Um, so what we'll do, we'll, we'll link the actual JAMA study um, uh, in the show notes. It's definitely worth reading. Uh, Josh mentioned it already, but there are really nice tables that, really outline the data. We've done kind of the quick and dirty summary of what the data was, but um, the, the article itself gets into some really great uh, statistical analysis and, um, and, and ways of slicing and dicing the data that we haven't shared today. So definitely do read that paper. And I think it would be really exciting if we could get the authors on this podcast. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll see if we can make that happen, but, uh, but I, it would I think- It would also be it, exciting for them to 
beyond this really popular podcast. Yeah, I mean, with the millions of audience members that we have. But no, it, um, actually speaking, though, I, I think, you know, any type of research that's coming out today that has digital patient engagement or some sort of, um, you know, technology advancement that can be used in useful ways and are, you know, potentially bringing insights that we can act on, uh, I think is just overall very positive for the industry uh, and the fact that this group out of uh, the University of Pennsylvania has gone and done that and, and in multiple um, specialties as well I think is, is speaks volumes for um, the direction that that group is headed and the, the direction that the industry at large is, is headed as well. Um, so yeah I, I think it would be a, a fascinating discussion to have them on the, the pod and, and we can actually find out what they're doing with this data um, moving forward. I think that would be That's great. great. Anyone else has any um, suggestions for, you know, patient engagement or monitoring or patient report outcomes related um, studies, articles, et cetera, um, send it our way. Um, and we'd love to dive in and, and get it on the podcast. Mm -hmm. And uh, same thing, we posed this question last time that we did a review of a study, but um, if you like the format, let us know. We, we did get some great feedback from the last review that we did. Um, and, you know, I think people do like listening to a review of a study, especially if it's done properly and, and accurately and we don't, um, you know, butcher what's going on in the study. But um, I think maybe also adding in our own piece, we do have um, obviously some frontline experience with digital patient engagement. So we, we have a, a bit of knowledge in that space that can be shared as well. So um, let us know if you like the format of looking at some of these papers, reviewing it and, you uh, I think that's maybe it, Josh. I, I don't know if you have any other pieces to add here, but. No, this was great. Uh, thank you again, Alan. Looking forward to the next one. Amazing. See you, Josh.